Sometimes the pro-abortion worldview is propped up by bad biology. Sometimes it's propped up by bad philosophy. And sometimes it's propped up by both. And sometimes it's propped up by one masquerading as the other. Today, let's dive into some bad philosophy that is masquerading as bad biology. Join us soon. Hi, folks. My name is Cam. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so that together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Happy Giving Tuesday. Um, For those of you who don't know what Giving Tuesday is, Giving Tuesday is a day that happens right after Cyber Monday and a few days after Black Friday um, that encourages people to consider financially partnering with um, charitable or or, um, social causes and that kind of thing. I'm sure many of you have gotten um, emails, notifications, all kinds of stuff from other entities as well that you probably tied into. Um, And I'll talk a little bit about Giving Tuesday through the lens of CCBR and the Pro-Life Guys podcast towards the end but that's probably not why you joined the show. Um, Before I dive into the real reason why you joined the show, um, happy belated Thanksgiving to all my American friends and followers. I hope that you guys had a glorious day. Uh, We certainly have an awful lot to be thankful for, not only as Christians, but as pro-lifers. With the overturning of Roe versus Wade, certainly there's a lot that we wish had gone differently. We'll be doing an episode um, coming up here relatively shortly on the outcome of the Michigan um, struggle that that I had done a couple episodes on a, a month or so ago. Um, we have an awful lot to be thankful for, and um, I, I think that it's important for us to take time to reflect on that and reflect on whether it's the small victories or the large victories. Um, the pro-life movement is a daunting, challenging movement to be a part of. There's an awful lot of... I mean, I'll put it plainly, there's an awful lot of failure that, that we see. And and that failure isn't because of our ineptitude or, or anything like that. Um, there, there's an awful lot of um, battles and, and I don't know, engagement points that, that don't come out as favorable as we would like. Tragically, there's so many people that we um, try to engage at abortion facilities around the world. There's people that we try to have conversations with on doorsteps and on street corners who don't change their mind, who continue persevering in their pro-abortion worldview, maybe even to um, uh, the point of continuing on with their abortion um, decision if we're outside of a clinic or something like that. And so um, there's there's an awful lot that can make us um, frustrated. There's an awful lot that can make us very sad and at times very upset. Um, I think it's absolutely essential that we take the time to reflect on the small and large victories. that, that are before us and not not necessarily even with a, a lens towards strategy and how do we make this next year even better. There's time for that. Let's take our time to celebrate um, the joys um, that have been the year in 2022. And so bearing all of that in mind, I, I have been blessed to um, offer a bunch of workshops over the last couple of weeks, couple of months here. Um, as many of you probably know, that on behalf of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, I do speaking events across the country. Um, I've done many of them in person. I've done many more um, virtually as well. Um, and in the last, I want to say the last just over a month, maybe six weeks or so, I, I was able to join my colleague Kyle for a crash course in Winnipeg. Um, 
Last week, time of recording, we did a crash course down in Monarch, Alberta, which is a tiny little town, um, southern Alberta, just outside of Lethbridge area. Um, had a great audience there. And then last two nights ago, um, did a talk at the Lifehouse here in Calgary. Um, I'd love to do talks for, for your team, wherever they may be. But um, a theme that I have noticed through many of the Q&A sessions at the workshops that I'm giving are questions that present themselves as um, sophisticated biological arguments, which are really just really bad philosophical arguments masquerading as good biology arguments, but really they're bad biology arguments um, and, and it's just bad philosophy masquerading as bad biology. And, and this always brings me back a little bit um, to my time in university. And so I, I went to the University of Victoria and I, I thankfully was able to get involved in the pro-life movement there um, to some capacity. If you want to hear the, the origin story of, of some capacity, I'm sure that there's other episodes that you can listen to that. I won't reiterate it here, but I often think of an experience that I had while doing one of our choice chain displays, showing the reality of what abortion does to a preborn child and engaging people um, in these conversations on the campus at the University of Victoria and we were set up outside um, one of the main science buildings where, where science lectures were held, but also um, a lot of the biology labs were in there. And so that, that's obviously where I spent a tremendous amount of my time. We had picked that location because we wanted to talk to biology students because, um, you know what, nothing against um, the art students of the world, but we, we were pretty keen on um, chatting with some biology students and... Um, and so we, we decided that we were going to set up outside um, Cunningham building at the UVic campus. And we're having conversations. We were talking to a bunch of people. I was in a, a crowd of people, and a bunch of them were debating the biology of when human life began. Um, and I was explaining things. We didn't have the human rights argument way back when I was in university. Um, and so I was trying to talk through it, talk through it. And lo and behold, one of the main like head honchos of the biology department. I believe that he was the chair of the biology department at the time. Um, I'm going to name him right here, not for public shaming, but just for the legitimacy of the story. Dr. Greg Bolio um, came by. He was, he was a, a very prominent biologist at the University of Victoria. I'd taken a number of courses with him. Um, a brilliant guy um, and, and very sound in genetics and developmental biology and all that kind of stuff. And so I actually was able to haul Dr. Bolio into this conversation. I was like, Dr. Bolio, help us understand this. When does human life begin? And he was like, uh, that's a stupid question. Um, human life begin, obviously begins at, at fertilization. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. And, and he was like, well, I, I don't see how that helps you because abortion is totally still the right of, of the mother. And I was like, what? You as an expert in biology just agreed that human life begins at fertilization. We have a distinct living member of the human family at this point, And yet you think that abortion is totally legit. And, and it, it surprised me at the time. And, and we ended up talking through actually a few of the arguments that I'm going to talk through today in the episode. But what it showed me was something that was made evident again in a study um, that we actually covered in like episode two or episode three on this very podcast, um, a study done by a fellow out of the University of Chicago who polled embryolo professional embryologists and biologists, both in academia and the private sector, um, asking them, when did human life begin? And the overwhelming majority of them, 96% of them were willing to admit um, and acknowledge that human life 
begins at the moment of fertilization. And yet somehow an overwhelming majority of them still supported abortion. And and that's frustrating. And, and for a lot of us, it's confusing. Like, how could that happen? And unfortunately, that happens because just because you're an expert in biology does not mean that you are an expert, let alone sound in any capacity in philosophy. And I want to walk through a few arguments that get made that kind of try to straddle the, the gap between um, biology and philosophy that you've probably encountered at different points in your pro-life outreach that we can kind of unpack here as a how do we navigate this? I, I'm assuming some degree of um, kind of background in this. I'm not going to walk through the common ground analogy question, the, the basics necessarily for every single one of them. I'll walk through it for a few of them just to jog your memory. If you are very new to um, having pro-life conversations or the, or the way that, that I try to have them, that I um, encourage you to have them, I'll post a link to um, a, a couple of episodes in the description below that kind of demonstrate the format, the roadmap that we want to have for conversations. Um, but without further ado, the first one that I want to tackle, it came up um, at my presentation two nights ago here in Calgary. Um, one of the young fellows that was um, attending, pro-life guy, he was, he was curious. He said, what do you even do when somebody says, we don't know when human life begins? This is a great mystery. You, you can't prove that human life begins at fertilization. How do you prove it to them empirically? Well, what kind of studies, what kind of academic resources can you throw their way to demonstrate that? And it was an interesting question because there's two ways of navigating the answer to that. The first answer, the, the most obvious answer to we don't know if preborn children are members of the human species are, is yes, we do. We can empirically demonstrate um, and, and scientifically demonstrate that human life begins at fertilization. We can do that through the two central questions of the human rights argument. First, if something is growing, isn't it alive? I mean, that, that's a pretty common sense question. And, and if we have a living organism then, and it has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? So we can certainly do that. We can appeal to authority. We can pull on our smartphones. We can Google when does human life begin. We can go to that study that I mentioned earlier um, about all of these biologists agreeing that human life begins at fertilization. We know when human life begins. This is not, this is not something that's debated within biology circles. We know when human life begins. And, and so that, that's why I find it difficult when I get a bunch of keener um, pro-life high school students that are trying to do a paper on abortion. I'm like, hey, can you send me a contemporary um, cutting edge article demonstrating that human life begins at fertilization? I was, and it's difficult because there aren't any experiments or, or anything done to demonstrate that fact anymore. I mean, it, it, it's asinine to, to even try to challenge that question. I mean, in so much as we don't have any contemporary contemporary scientific experiments to determine whether or not women or men or, or toddlers are members of the human species. We don't, we don't run experiments year over year to prove once again that um, preborn children are members of the human species. And so I often send a lo along a lot of biology quotes, but that's, that's only one way to answer this question. I, I love the route that, that a, a friend and, and kind of colleague in the movement, Greg Kokel, often takes regarding the burden of proof. And, and he asks, what if 
your conclusion is correct. What if it's true that we don't know when human life begins? Unfortunately, people are constantly saying, well, well, science is constantly changing. We don't know if science is going to change tomorrow. And maybe tomorrow they will say that human life doesn't begin at fertilization. Again, the problem that lies therein is that, that we have to use the, the information available to us. If, um, if, I, I'm trying to think of an analogy of of like if if the the biological consensus changes on something, then then certainly our behavior around that is going to change. But um, until we know otherwise, we have to use the information. And let let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let let's say for the sake of argument that we don't know when human life begins. We don't know if a preborn child is a member of the human species or not. We don't know if a zygote, an embryo, a fetus um, who has human parents is a living human or not. That doesn't actually play into the favor of the pro-abortion worldview, right? Because if, if we don't know if we're killing a human being, then we have to err on the side of caution. Right, the burden of proof is on them to demonstrate that human life does not begin at fertilization. It's not enough to say that we don't know or that the evidence might change or that the conclusions that our biological community have come to might at one time change. Um, we, we need them to prove it. I mean, by way of analogy, my, my friend and colleague, uh, Stephanie Gray Connors, would often talk about detonating or demolishing a building. Can you demolish a building if you don't know if it's empty or not, if there might still be a work crew in there, could you ever demolish the building? No, you have to be absolutely certain that there's nobody in there. Similarly, um, for all of my, my hunters out there, um, if, if you hear a rustle in the bushes and you don't know if it's a deer or your hunting partner, um, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of Dick Cheney jokes and other jokes that, that could go in here, but, but tragically, um, that that happens, we can't shoot unless we know with absolute certainty that it's not a fellow hunter or not a member of the human family and our target. And, and not only that, like you have to know that it's your ticket that you're going for, that that if it turns out to not be the, the mule deer that you have a ticket for and it's a moose or a um, something else, you have to know with absolute certainty that it is... Um, something or that it's not something. The same thing goes for abortion. If we don't know if abortion kills a human or not, then we can't kill that human. And so all that to say, what do you actually do in conversation? I, I will try to bring each of these back to what I would actually say in conversation. So I would almost always start by pursuing that first route of, of argumentation. Um, we don't know when human life begins. Yes, we do. Could I ask you a question? Could we agree that if something is growing in an independent fashion, even from one cell to two cells to four cells, it must be alive? Okay, well, well, sure, it, it must be a living something, but we don't know what that something is. Okay, well, if that living something has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? Yeah. Okay, so we do know. If that gets pushed back on like, okay, well, that, that sounds really nice, but I'm sure that that's just kind of pro-life mumbo jumbo kind of painting me into a corner. I just don't know how to explain it out. Then I'm going to appeal to authority. And I'm going to pull out my phone or I'm going to cite a, a textbook or ask them to cite a textbook. The, the number of times I've offered the wager, um, I'm not actually a gambling man, but um, to say like, hey, if you can find a biology textbook in your university library, um, that says that human life doesn't begin at fertilization, I'll give you a hundred bucks. 
and just puts a little bit of weight behind it because I know that I'm never going to have to pay out on that. I know that every single biology textbook in any university is going to affirm that human life begins at fertilization. So I'm going to do human rights argument first. I'm going to do appeal to authority second. The only time that I'm going to go down that route of burden of proof is if one of two situations. One, if I'm having a really good conversation with a stranger and I feel like not 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 feel like I'm I should be charitable or whatever, but like I I want to build a little bit more rapport. And I say, like, you know what, dude, or or you know what, whomever, whether it's a guy or a girl, um, let's say that you're right. Let's say that you're right. I want to build them up a little bit and I want to give them a little bit of um maybe a little bit of false hope to build them up and say, like, even if you're right, you have to acknowledge that we can't pursue with abortion. It, it's just a, a slightly different angle that might build a little bit of rapport and and kind of whether it's the common ground component or, or, or otherwise. The other time that I'm going to use it is if I have some degree of um, personal relational capital with the person. If, if it's a friend, family member, something like that. Um, not that I'm bludgeoning the person with biology beforehand, um, but I feel like this can be a softer approach at times if you're talking to a friend or family member of like, come on, brother, sister, whomever. We, we'd have to agree that even if you're right, we we can't kill human. We we can't kill a human, or or, and this is where you have to be careful about potentiality, right? Because potentiality can be used in two contexts. Concepts, and it's going to flow into the second argument that I'm going to talk about. When I talk about a potential human, I'm not talking about something that could turn into a human, but rather something that could either be a human or not be a human, right? Uh, when um, I, I use this analogy often. I, so I wear contact lenses. You've seen me with glasses a few times for those who follow the YouTube channel. Um, when I don't have my contacts in, there are things that could be spiders or could be hairballs in my house. Uh, my wife does a, an incredible job um, and I, I try to help out wherever I can, um, keeping the house nice and tidy. But at times I'll find a little, a little bundle of hair um, here and there. And there's the potential that it could be a hairball or a spider when I'm looking at it in that the the evidence as i accumulate more evidence could demonstrate that it's a spider or it's a hairball but it's not that a hairball could ever turn into a spider it's not that it has potential in the future to become something different but rather with more information i will know whether or not it's one or the other and so potentiality can be used in two different contexts um and so I am using kind of the former context where it's not a matter of progression, but rather as we accumulate more evidence, um, we'll know one way or another until we have that more evidence, until we have a, an absolute conclusion demonstrating that this is not a human being, we can't act. Hopefully that makes sense. Um, let me know if, if there's any lack of clarity around that, but let's, let's build into that second question of potentiality. Somebody will say to me, you know what it, this is a, a potential human. Absolutely, they they could do great things. This this could be a pianist. This could be a scientist. This could be a, a tradesperson. This could be somebody who does great things, but they're not right now. They're a potential human. Stephanie, again, Stephanie Gray is a great um, kind of mentor, and um, she was definitely the one who who did a lot of my formation when I came into being a pro life apologist. And she would often make the distinction between a potential human and a human with great potential in that she would compare two different entities that had the same current capacity, but different inherent capacity. She would say, is 
a preborn child not capable of whatever um, capacity that you're talking about in potentiality because of what they are, because of how old they are, diving into age-based discrimination. Again, this is bad philosophy veiled as bad biology. In that, it sounds like a biological argument saying that they're a potential human, that, that they're not a biological member of the human family yet. And yet, you need to ask only one question to unpack that. What do you mean by human? Well, humans are, are people who can survive on their own or, or sentience or, or independence or brainwaves or this or that or the other thing. That's not biology. That is philosophy in saying that it's not humans get human rights not living members of the human species get human rights, but rather living humans who express a particular attribute get human rights, the human plus X equation. And in that scenario, we need to pursue the age-based discrimination line of argumentation. Okay, I agree that that attribute, that characteristic does not exist at the point of fertilization, at the early embryonic stages, at, at early fetal stages. Why doesn't that capacity exists. Why isn't a preborn child able to fulfill that function? It's because of how old they are. And so what we're saying is that you don't get human rights based on your level of development, your, your age. And how is age-based discrimination any better than any other form of discrimination? That's the primary line of argumentation that I want to suggest. Age-based discrimination, human plus X. Why does that difference exist? This is a potential human. Okay, when when do you know that they're human? When when have you made it as a valuable human? When when you've expressed this um, ability? I mean that that's clearly ableism. We're going to dive into that. Um, and and we we need only ask why does that difference exist? And why is ability based or age based discrimination any better than any other form of discrimination that has tragically played out throughout history? So that, that's the primary line of argumentation. The secondary line of argumentation that you can go into, and I know that my colleague Kyle, who is a much smarter man, much, much deeper um, philosoph um, philosopher than I am, he often posts these great things on his Facebook page. Um, because winter in Winnipeg can be difficult and, and he's got a little bit more time in front of the computer. He, he posts some great content there. Um, so shout out to my colleague Kyle out there. Um, but he talks about um, inherent capacity and, and things like that and asking questions along the lines, okay, if, if sentience or if, if this or that or the other thing is the quintessential, if that's the valuable attribute for humanity and you're not a human until you've achieved that degree of capacity, what is that quintessential attribute for other species? For dogs, for example, do we say that you're not a dog unless you can bark? Do we say that you're not a fish unless you can swim or a bird unless you can fly? Because those are the bad biology questions that we used to ask a long time ago and say like, that's, that's why some, some very foolish people way back when didn't think that penguins were birds because they couldn't fly or ostriches were birds because they couldn't fly. Like that is terrible biology rooted in terrible philosophy because the terrible biology is what is motivating a miscategorization of whether or not they're a member of the species. But, but most people can see through that. They're not actually saying that a preborn child is not a living member of the human species. We need only walk through those two central questions of the human rights argument again. What it's rooted in is bad philosophy in saying that value is rooted in 
current capacity or within the capacity for particular abilities. And while that might make sense, I, I saw that my colleague Kyle had posted the acorn and the oak tree, that you don't sit under an acorn for shade. And that's a very utilitarian approach, a, a very ableism approach that, that certainly we don't ask our infants or preborn children to perform heart surgery, but we don't get human rights based on what we contribute or what we can and can't do. There's only one thing that we all share to the equal degree amongst the human family. There's only one thing that we all share to an equal amount, and that is our membership in the human family. We're all at different stages of development. We're all different sizes. We're all different environments and degrees of dependency and all that kind of stuff. The, the old flag sled argument from way back when, those are all varying, not only within our own life, but between humans um, that we would count have made it. And so if the only thing that we share in an equal capacity um, is our membership in humanity, that's the thing that we should base equal human rights upon. And so that's something that we can do as well. If, if the, the primary line of argumentation of um, understanding what they think is necessary to be counted as human, asking why that difference exists between born and preborn children, and following that up with why age-based or ability-based discrimination is any, any better than any other form of discrimination. If that line of argumentation either becomes dry or, or you want to explore another line of argumentation, you can go that route of, of um, why is that um, ability not expressed? And is it, again, a function of age or a function of, of kind and if that, if we don't take those quintessential attributes at other stages of development or amongst other species, then why for the human species? And so that, that's how we navigate that one. Next one that I'm going to touch on briefly, um, just a clump of cells. This is a really bad argument. Um, clump of cells, it's tied in at times with like, but looking at a preborn child or like, can you distinguish a one cell human zygote from a one cell chicken zygote or dog zygote or, or elephant zygote or anything else. We, we can't even tell that they're human. And again, primary line of argumentation that isn't going to be condescending and isn't going to be um, super rude, human rights argument. Okay, so, so does that mean that we agree that if something's growing, it must be alive? Sure, we have a living organism, but we don't know what kind of living organism it is. Yes, we do. Because if a living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? Because this is addressing terrible biology. And I'm sure there, there's some terrible philosophy steeped into it as well. But as we mentioned earlier, the fact that you don't know whether or not the bird flying two kilometers away that you can barely see as a speck in the sky, you don't know whether or not that's a bird or a bat doesn't mean that it can't be known or that it isn't known. Right? The fact that you don't know what species an organism belongs to doesn't mean that it can't be known or isn't known. That just means that you're bad at biology. That just means that you don't have enough information. That just means that you're not asking the right questions at times. And so if we, if we can be a little bit more jocular with the person we're talking to because we have a little bit more uh, relational capital with them, we might be able to ask some of those questions or, or kind of point out some of those tongue-in-cheek answers of, you know what, are you saying that nobody knows? Or are you saying that you don't know? Are you saying that 
Nobody can differentiate a, a, a human embryo from a chicken embryo or that you can't differentiate because that's a huge difference. The fact that you don't know the difference between the two of them doesn't mean that nobody else knows the difference. We can know the difference but from this third question of the human rights argument. If a living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? We can know right from then. Any biologist would, who has any kind of data on the lineage or the genetic sequencing, right? Uh, we know that, that human genetics are in, very different from chicken genetics and um, whale genetics and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that, that means nothing. The fact that you don't have enough information to make a concrete decision says that you need to accumulate more information. Because again, as we talked about before, the burden of proof is to say, unless you can prove that it's not a human embryo, as, as, uh, until you can prove that this isn't going to kill a living member of the human species, we can't do anything. If it turns out that somehow this is an embryo of a different species, then our behavior, our conduct might be different, but the burden of proof is on them. So again, we're going to go through the human rights argument. Something is growing, isn't alive. That living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? Um, and then we might be able to, depending on our relational capital, offer some of, the, of those jocular kind of statements or questions of, is this a matter of your knowledge or do you think that nobody knows? Because there's a lot of things that I don't know, but that doesn't mean that nobody knows. That doesn't mean that um, it can't be known. It probably just means that I have to ask more questions to get more information. The last one that I'm going to talk about is something that we've talked about on the show again, but I'm going to rehash it um, just for the sake of new audience members. It does come up very frequently. I feel like it's gaining traction on Twitter posts and signs that, that um, counter-protesters will hold. Just a parasite. Freeborn child is just a parasite. And I want to encourage you to not fall into the trap that a lot of pro-lifers fall into that debate whether or not a parasite can be a member of the same species. Talking definitions is only so helpful because different people are going to use different definitions. My um, shout out to my my colleague, my friend and former colleague Rachel. Um, I don't know if Rachel ever listens to these episodes. She knows as much as I do on on apologetics. She was a staff member for CSPR for a long time. Rachel and I used to debate all the time the definition of what is and is not a sport. And Rachel would always go to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary and Merriam-Webster Dictionary, I don't even remember verbatim what the definition of a sport was. I disagree with that. I, I think that a sport demands an objective metric of success with some degree of physical exertion. And so it's not just a metric of success. Uh, board games are not sports. Sorry, guys. Board games are great. They're not sports. And artistic things that are measured not on a, um, on a, a, a standardized metric, but rather an opinion poll, don't qualify, in my opinion, as sports. They're incredibly difficult. Don't get me wrong. Um, Gymnastics, obviously, I know that gymnastics and figure skating, I'm sure that I'm shooting myself in the foot here a whole bunch for any um, gymnastics or, or figure skating people. Um, Gymnastics are incredibly difficult. They, they require uh, the highest degree of physical aptitude. I don't think that often the way that my understanding of gymnastics and, and the judge's evaluation of the artistic expression and how well they, they integrated their physical prowess with the music that was being played, I don't think that makes it a sport. I don't think that running is a sport until you put a finish line. I don't think that weightlifting 
is a sport until you're measuring how much you can lift or, or how often you can lift it or something like that. I think that you need an objective metric that you are comparing um, candidate to candidate. Anyhow, I digress. Definitions can be debated back and forth. I acknowledge that that is not the definition accepted by many people in the world. Um, I acknowledge that, that there is debate around what is and isn't a sport. I would acknowledge as well that there is debate as to what does and does not um, qualify as a parasite. And so what I would do is not debating whether or not a parasite can be a member of the same species, but rather, what does parasite tell us? Because saying that something is a parasite doesn't actually speak to whether or not there's an organism there. It speaks to whether or not the organism that is there is in a balanced relationship. Arguably, what calling something or someone a parasite says is that they are taking more than they are giving, right? A mosquito is a parasite because they are taking an awful lot and they're not giving you anything or certainly not anything that you want, right? And so it describes a relationship between two organisms. And so inherent in saying that a preborn child is a parasite, they are acknowledging that this is a living organism, an independent organism. And bearing that in mind, describing that relationship between that organism and their parent, they will kind of callously characterize the parent as the host, but characterizing the parent as somebody who is giving more than they're getting. And you're going to trot out the toddler in that scenario. You're going to go through common ground analogy question in this capacity, rather than starting with the human rights argument, common ground analogy question. You know what? You and I agree that a, the, the relationship between a born or a preborn child and their mother is not a balanced relationship. They are taking way more than they're getting. Asterisks here, do not argue that they are giving more than they're getting because a lot of the metrics that we're going to use, I agree that they give joy and, and happiness and hope and all these kinds of things. They're very intangible. Don't debate whether or not a preborn child gives more than they get. Yes, they contribute towards mother's immune system. Don't debate whether or not the contribution towards mother's immune system is um, tips the scales when it comes to what the mother is offering. The mother is offering them far more than they're um, offering the mother. I, I think that's plain to see. Analogy, though. Could we agree that the relationship between born children and their parents is often very skewed as well? Often, from a socioeconomic standpoint, a born child offers nothing towards the functioning of the family. And so it'd be very easy to characterize the relationship between a born child and their parents as a parasitic relationship where they're taking far more than they are giving, particularly in the early years of, of their born life. But you again, you can make a tongue-in-cheek um, joke. Humor is very valuable at times in these conversations about teenagers, about that 40-year-old who's still living in his parents' basement. Many people would characterize that as a parasitic relationship. And yet we can't kill born humans who have an unbalanced relationship with their caregivers and providers. And if we can't kill a born child who has a quote-unquote parasitic relationship on those around them, then why a preborn child? Well, it's not a child. Human rights argument. Can we agree that all humans get human rights? Um, yes, we can. If something's growing, isn't alive, that living organism has human parents. Aren't they a living human? Yes. Um, doesn't that make abortion a human rights violation? Bingo, bango, bongo. Your name's Roberta Luongo. Um, as the saying went in Vancouver for so long. Um, those, those are a few bad philosophical arguments masquerading as good 
biological arguments. There's going to be a few more that I do in a, a subsequent episode talking about tumors and whether or not a preborn child can be likened with a tumor. I'll be talking a little bit about um, a few other ones in an upcoming episode, but that's 35 minutes of recording already, more or less. Um, let's talk a little bit about Giving Tuesday. Um, I'm sure that my wonderful colleagues in um, our fundraising and admin department would have loved for me to take a little bit more of a fundraising focus initially. I know that some of you are going to tune out right now because the, the core content is over. But as Giving Tuesday, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about um, financial partnership within the pro-life movement, that um, the pro-life movement functions, um, CCBR functions based on the generosity of people like you. Um, this show functions, literally the Pro-Life Guys podcast functions because of eight or 10 Patreon supporters financially partnering on a monthly basis, allowing us to cover our cost when it comes to not only the, the very modest thank yous that we send to our guests, um, but also all of the equipment, all of the subscriptions that we have, all of our production costs that we have going towards Maddie Halleck, who does such an incredible job on both the video and the audio. We have overhead to be able to put this content into the earbuds of people like you. And not only that, the entire purpose of this podcast is to get more boots on the ground. And that flows directly into the mission of CCBR, the parent organization of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, um, a national pro-life organization in Canada here, which works to um, equip, mobilize, um, and lead pro-life efforts which integrate abortion victim photography together with compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion. Every year, we're going to do a year in review um, in a couple of weeks here about all of the incredible work that we've done. Um, quick sneak peek, we are incredibly close to 4 million in-person touch points with abortion victim photography and thousands of thousands of meaningful conversations with Canadians coast to coast. And so your financial partnership allows us to put more boots on the ground, allows us to take on the staff necessary to, um, to manage volunteer teams, equip them, train them, mobilize them, um, allows us, we've got two new staff members coming on right now, Virginia White, who's an absolute champ um, that I've talked about before, who's working to mobilize churches across Western Canada. Um, we have Jeff, um, Jeff Owen, who's working with community groups across Canada to get them implementing effective CSPR strategies. We have people in Ontario who are fundraising right now. And we have our organization fundraising right now so that we can host and facilitate these now world-renowned internships over the summer. I'm sure that many of you have heard of our internships, two and four-month programs, which equip um, pro-lifers with the tools that they need to take on leadership within Canada and the global pro-life movement. Um, these only function because of the generosity of people like you. And so if you want to sign up to be a Pro-Life Guys Patreon supporter, please do so. I'll drop the link in the show notes below. If you want to check out a lot of the content that's going to be coming out today from CCBR, follow all of our social media handles um, on Instagram, Facebook. I'm sure that we were doing stuff on Twitter as well, but mostly Instagram and Facebook. Um, check out what we're doing there. There's going to be some live updates of um, what we've accomplished. We have the goal of 50,000 views of abortion victim photography touch points in person um, and trying to raise $50,000. So if you can help us out towards that goal, that'd be absolutely incredible. If you can share around um, the posts and whatnot that we have been doing, I would absolutely love that. If you can become a Patreon supporter, join our team of eight to 10 people um, to get some bonus content and um, further enable this show 
to be able to expand. I would love to bring on another part-time person who can help me with the distribution and marketing of the show so that we can get this into the earbuds of more and more people um, so that we can get posters in churches so that we can be advertising in um, bulletins and Christian newspapers and other areas so that we can get more people learning quality pro-life apologetics. If you can help us out towards that, I would be absolutely so, so grateful um, for that financial partnership. And so please prioritize, um, partnering with pro-life entities because, um, of the, the desperation and urgency of this issue. Um, there's a ton of good issues out there and, and this isn't a matter of pushing down other issues, but rather trying to elevate the pro-life issue. Um, because as I'm sure that many of you know, but as, as many of you, myself included, need to be reminded of at a regular basis, there are 300 preborn children approximately killed every single day here in Canada. And and that number skyrockets around the world. I, um, Olivia, um, a, a great um, former intern and incredible pro-life advocate in the States, um, was sharing that that a lot of um, entities, including the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood's uh, research wing, estimate that there's around between 60 and 75 million abortions worldwide annually. Um, this is a desperate fight. And your finances go an awful long ways. When you look at um, what a very modest budget is able to accomplish for CCBR of engaging millions of Canadians in um, meaningful interactions year over year, um, tens of thousands of people in conversations year over year, it's absolutely spectacular what we're able to do. The team that I work with is um, just absolute rock stars and gems. Um, so if you want to enable and empower that to continue growing, please financially partner. Um, that's it for me. Thanks so much for tuning into the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Sorry that I wasn't able to get an episode up last week. There's just so much going on from CSPR. Another reason why financial partnership is helpful, because the more staff that we can bring on, the more that I can offload um, some of the other speaking and, and training and other events that I'm I'm committed to and I can dive a little bit more deeply into the Pro-Life Guys podcast until your financial partnership gets us more boots on the ground and ultimately more episodes and more training into um, the pro-life movement and the growing pro-life um, sphere. So thanks a ton. Thanks for tuning in um, and hope that you're able to tune in again next week. God bless. Hey.